Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, it's real talk on food shaming. New friend to the show, Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson, professor and chair of American Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. She is also author of the award-winning Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power, a groundbreaking study that explores the nexus between food, gender, race, class, and power in the United States. Her forthcoming book, Eating While Black, Real Talk on Food Shaming and and Policing in America examines anti-Black racism in and around our food lives and culture. It's a really great episode, and I'm so glad that I am able to introduce Dr. Psyche to you. Also welcome, good friend of mine, but new to you, Maya DiGiorgio, comedian, actor, writer, radio personality, filmmaker, musician, and a New York to L.A. transplant. In her first year of doing stand-up comedy, she took the comedy world by storm while taping five national TV appearances, which included her receiving a standing ovation at NBC's Live from the Apollo. Her hour special for Comedy Dynamics, titled Maya, 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 recorded at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City, is available now on Amazon Prime. It's a great episode to share with a friend. I will be performing in Michigan this Thursday to Saturday at the Grand Rapids Comedy Club. Yes, only at the Grand Rapids Comedy Club Five shows. You know someone in Michigan near Grand Rapids? Tell them to come and check me out. Tickets available at marinafranklin.com. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeustin. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to patreon friends now available for our golden friends it's the opportunity to watch us record backstage in real time you get to comment and you get to see the rooted to the tootie of the podcast so thank you golden friends merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops they're all available just go to marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick my wacky friend dave jessica we give updates to the show we shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands wear a mask still if you want to get vaccinated booster up and black lives I'm really excited to have my guest today, especially because both of you have never been on the show. So it's a great way to highlight two incredible women. Maya, I've known for a very long time, but I have I've never like been around her long enough. She's (laughs) always like in L.A. or she's just always on the go. She's like a very physically, you know, people who are just like physically always moving. That's Maya. (laughs) 
<laughs> but Maya is also true story. One of the comics when I first started that I looked up to that I saw do deft comedy jam completely blew me away, blew everyone away off the stage. I mean, like she's just a beast. She is the original like killer comedian. <laughs> hey. And I'm just so glad to have you, Maya. Now, her face is frozen in disbelief of this, <laughs> which is really funny. She has this look like it's hard to believe you're you're, you're saying this, Marina. I'm back. I'm back. I can't see you guys. Did you hear all my beautiful compliments about you? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Anything somebody say. All right. So Dr. Psyche Williams. Psyche. 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 Yes. That's your real name? Yes. Just like psychology. Psyche. Dr. Psyche. Yeah. <laughs> now, Not I was just psychic. telling you before the re we started recording how mm -hmm. much I really like enjoyed because I didn't know a lot about you. Like I was saying, my intern was like, would you like to have doctor as I was hearing it, Dr. Psych? I was like, who's Dr. Psych? <laughs> and I was like, Dr. Psyche, when I looked you up and I saw everything that you do, it really spoke to me and it resonated me on a level because as I was telling you, my sister's mother, Jermaine, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You reminded me of her so much. You mm -hmm. have the same, like the same voice, the same intelligence. No, thank you. Thank you. But I yeah, it's that. just, you made me, um, you made me miss Jermaine oh. when I was listening to you because she's, you know, a lot of, in my family, a lot of our elders are missing. We mm -hmm. don't have them anymore to mm -hmm. listen to and give us information. And so mm -hmm. when I was listening to you, I was like, oh, okay. You're still right. out here. You're yeah, still out here there. giving the information and your professor mm -hmm. and you're in mm -hmm. Maryland, right? At Maryland. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a book about building the house. Wait, say, <laughs> I was about to say building the house with chicken wings, but that's not the title. Close, but not. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, the can you building building houses out of chicken legs? Black Women, Food, and Power. Nice. That's the title. And can you tell us about the book, like why you wrote it and why that title? Sure. Thank you, first of all, for, for having me on. Um, the, the, the book, the study was um, my doctoral thesis. And I wrote the book because I noticed around that time a lot of resurfaced references to black people and chicken and watermelon. So this was just shortly, this was right before President Obama was elected um, the first time. And I don't know, there was this visual resurgence. For one, the Martin Luther King holiday had passed. And for example, um, you had advertisements for parties taking place being held by white fraternities that would advertise with a 40 ounce of beer, a bucket of chicken and, you know, a MLK party. Right? Um, around that time, also Tiger Woods won the Masters for the first time. And Fuzzy Zeller, um, who was one of his fellow golfers, said, you know, tell him not to order fried chicken and collard greens or whatever the hell those people eat, right? got a lot of backlash from there. And several other incidents happened around that time. So I recall saying to myself, I can't believe it's 2000 and 
Black people are still being associated stereotypically with chicken. So I started um, because, you know, Google wasn't back then what it is today. Um, but I started researching um, Black people and chicken and these images would come out of, you know, that were being described on eBay as hilarious and so forth and so forth. So I started writing about, you know, Black people's legacies with chicken. And then I, I got tired. I got tired of the victimization. I got tired of this narrative of Black people as um, less than human in the, and, and I mean, I just have so many images, but you had things like the Coon Chicken Inn where it was the, the, the mascot was a big shiny black face with big red lips and people would literally go to this restaurant, you know? Um, and so I decided that I had had enough. And one day I found a clipping that had been sent to me by a colleague and it talked about um, a fried chicken festival in Gordonsville, Virginia. And so I went down there and, and the festival had ended, but I heard this story about these black women who would sell chicken at the train station and they would call the chicken women, the fried chicken women. And so I, I went into their room, which was an African-American repository. And there was an article on the wall that a woman had given an uh, interview where she said, I am a third generation waiter carrier. My mother was one and her mother before her. And my mother built our house out of chicken legs. And the first one burnt down and then she rebuilt it. And I said, that's the story right there. Mm. How black people build houses out of chicken legs. We put kids through school. We move our class status. We have saved churches, you know? So it wasn't just about black people eating chicken. It's the sort of historical legacies and ways in which we have done incredible things in order to build uh, not so much necessarily economic wealth, but emotional, social, and, and, and communal wealth using this particular food stuff. So that was the story. Um, and the book looks at different areas. It looks historically from um, uh, prior to enslavement, then throughout enslavement. And then I look at popular culture. I look at cookbooks. I look at art, um, a number of different places where you see these narratives of Black women, food and power hmm. intersecting. Yeah. It's incredible because I actually had that moment with my father where I everyone was eating watermelon except for me. Mm -hmm. And my dad looked at me, he said, baby, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you afraid of the stereotype? Mm -hmm. And I had to re I, in that moment, I realized I was I was mm -hmm. not eating something as delicious as watermelon because I didn't want to be seen eating watermelon in my own space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't until my dad said it to me that I realized how it was affecting me without even like I hadn't said it out loud. I hadn't I just wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. Now I don't eat watermelon because health-wise, my my doctor recommended I not eat watermelon. Now you talk about shaming with that. I'm sure we do it to ourselves. So that's where it comes from, right? The shaming, eating watermelon, and people looking at while you're eating watermelon or while you're eating fried chicken and the shaming. Is that the only type of shaming that you are referring to? No, um, that's one kind. And we do it to ourselves and it is done to us as well. 
And what I talk about in this new book, Eating While Black, are the ways in which oftentimes Black communities allow ourselves to be, to buy into a single narrative of Black culture, right? I just had this conversation this morning with a colleague because we were talking about mental health. Um, And, you know, people sometimes don't realize that you can't control someone else's mental health. Um, And so she was explaining that she tells this to her students and that the Black students in particular get very quiet and ashamed. And I said, this is part of that shaming that I'm talking about. We as Black people have internalized, many of us have internalized the stories that are told to us about who we are, okay? You're dumb, you're ugly, you're fat, you're you're stupid, you're lazy. These are narratives we have heard throughout time. Verbally, we see it in, in uh, popular culture. That means music, film, literature, you name it. We've seen it over time. And what happens is I think we internalize this narrative. Um, there's a Nigerian author who I, who's argument I take up in this book by the name of Chimamanda Adichie. And Adichie has this wonderful TED talk for about eight to 10 minutes called The Danger of the Single Story. And she says, the problem is stereotypes exist, but the problem is they're incomplete, right? So you take the chicken and watermelon. Yes, Black people eat chicken and watermelon and we eat other things. But we stop at that point where we talk about chicken and watermelon. Same is true of shaming. Um, We hear stories about Black people and most Black folks do not know their own history. We don't know our history. It hasn't been taught to us. We haven't necessarily gone in search of it. And when we have, we've gotten the same narrative over and over. So we stop short at a single narrative. And it tends to be a narrative of stereotype. And so we internalize the shame of what other people have said about us as it relates to our food, et cetera. Some of us do. And then also we perpetrate that same action toward others. We also receive it quite a bit from other communities, white, black, um, Asian, you know, Latin, because black folks in America and typically throughout the African diaspora, so that's the world over, are not seen as human and whole. We tend to always be perceived of as the at the bottom of the totem pole, right? And so when you hear that over and over and over again, if you don't do the hard work of correcting those narratives, then it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And so that shame begins to come into almost every area of your life. I, I don't want people to know I'm in therapy. Why not? We have centuries of trauma as Black people. Why wouldn't you want people to know <laughs> you're in therapy? We should own every therapist's office in this world, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> you know, I mean, you when you Which have Which is so different through, from Jewish culture where they own it. They own it, right? Yeah. But again, that's a it's a, it's a culture of shame. Um, the stories of enslavement over three centuries have yet to be told, and are being told. But most people are the horrors, the brutalities, the violence, psychic, emotional, physical. If some of us knew the stories of our ancestors, we would cringe. You know. Um, and yet those are the stories that today we're being told should we should not tell, we should not learn because they may offend other people. 
Well, other people be damned, right? We are a culture of people, a race of people who have been and continue to be affected by that silence. I'm going to bring up this article about Tulsa because I was just there this weekend. And then I thought, how perfect is it that you're on my show on the weekend after I was actually performing in Tulsa? So, okay, so facts about this. I was booked for this event, this comedy show Mm. in Tulsa. And I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. I got to go. Now, I thought on some level, they are they going to address or, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Something, anything. (laughs) I didn't really know about the festival until they booked me. And then, you know, I just Mm -hmm. went and I land there and. I'm emotional while I'm there, right? I'm staying at uh, a hotel, a very historic, it's called a historic hotel, which was troubling. Mm. And it wasn't in, it's Greenwood area. That's uh, the area, Mm -hmm. which I didn't even understand that, by the way, because Mm -hmm. I didn't know, I thought it was just all of Tulsa, but it's actually a specific area in Tulsa called Greenwood Mm -hmm. that I had to Google while I was in this hotel, realizing I was in the hotel that was probably owned by the same people, generationally speaking, that probably burned down this mm-hmm. neighborhood. It's literally four minute drive. Mm-hmm. You drive oh. in Tulsa. You don't walk in Tulsa because it's so hot. That's what I learned mm-hmm. while I was there. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 dealing with the fact of the knowledge that I don't know. I'm emotional because I don't know it. I'm trying to find it all out while I'm there for a very short visit by Googling. Mm-hmm. And but I know uh, as I do the show, I'm like, or right before I perform doing stand up, by the way, I'm 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 looking at the comics in the green room. And I go, hey, they're all white. I'm looking at the the headlining comics. Most of them are white male. The ones in the bigger space, mostly white men. I'm looking I'm thinking, what what's the population? Is it going to be black individuals in the audience? I don't know. I'm a little nervous. So I asked in the green room, I go, does anyone here talk about it? And the comics, they both go, no, no one talks about it. I go, you mean to tell me in the years now? I don't know if these two comics really know what they're saying or if they've seen all the comics, but that's what they (laughs) said to me. And I was shocked. I said, really? No one. So then I go on stage. I see, well, I see in the audience, there's a handful, like five black individuals, maybe a table. A few of the comics are black, you know, two, maybe three, but predominantly a white audience. And I'm thinking to myself, do I address it? What do I say? Do I just do my job? Hmm. So I go on stage and I did do my job and I subtly bring in a couple of things like. I say, oh, my ancestors must have heard me say that. I say Mm -hmm. a couple of things like that, but I don't I don't address it in the set, Mm -hmm. but I have to say, like. I did mention my podcast. I said, if you want to listen to real conversations about things you don't know about, it's a good place. They had a great time. I got a standing O, you know, which was nice. But I did have that sort of guilt about not really going there, going there, Mm -hmm. which this is why Maya is here, because Maya goes there all the time. And afterwards, the next day, literally before flying out, I had maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. before dr- two hour drive back to the airport i gotta go i gotta go to greenwood i gotta see this 
Mm-hmm. I go there. I see the museum. I mean, I'm like still affected by it. And I mm-hmm. didn't see the museum wasn't open. There was just two people in front of a shop where they're selling T-shirts, mm-hmm. you know, both black individuals. I talked to the woman. I said, I just mm-hmm. want to get some piece of this. Can I get a T-shirt, something, anything, mm-hmm. which sounds so cliche. You know, you got your T-shirt, but I wanted something to to give back to a black business. So I told her, I said, I'm staying at the hotel. Uh, she goes, mm-hmm. I go, that hotel, do you think the owners, they say it's a historic, I see all the pictures, they're all white. Did they have something to do with the destruction of this neighborhood? And she said, you won't find anything about that. It's purposely done that way, where you will not mm-hmm. know the business that you're you're at if they had anything to do with the burning of this area, Greenwood of Tulsa. Trust me, but I'm glad you stopped in. And I'm still emotional about it. I'm still feeling a tremendous amount of guilt about not holding that festival, by the way, to accountable. Because if you're going to throw a festival, make money, where Mm -hmm. is that money going? And it's only five minutes away. Tell that because... We talk about all the time critical race theory and how they call it critical race theory when it's American history. Like, can you speak to that? Like that experience I just shared with you, Dr. Psyche? Mm -hmm. So there are two questions there. Speaking to the experience of Tulsa, um, not surprising, very much resonates with most of our, I think, life experiences. And it goes back to what I just said about us not knowing our history. See, there's a, I mean, there's a reason that we are not taught our history. For one, when you're ignorant about who you are and your resilience, in addition to the things that have been done to try and ensnare you and oppress you and so forth, that keeps you in a particular bubble. That's a, that's a weapon of control and power. Ignorance, you know, of, of, Please, Maya, Go ahead, Maya. jump in here. Um, that's it's kind of that it speaks exactly. My life has been really caught in that space, um, specifically because my mother um, did not. She passed when I was fourteen, and my father's Italian, so my father's family spent a lot of time um, trying to erase my mother. And my mother was, you know, her my, both my grandparents were from the South. Um, my grandmother was born in uh, Rome, Georgia. My grandfather in South Carolina. And my mother was a prodigy, performed all over the world and sang in seven languages and a concert level pianist. And uh, uh, Nat King Cole had her playing in opera houses all over the world at the age of 17. That's in the 1950s. And she got the key to the city of Paris at the age of 17. And my Italian grandparents, would you would have thought my mother was dealing drugs and was a drug addict and left me the way... They worked so hard to make sure that I had zero history. But my mother had sisters, very edu- all come from a family of incredibly educated women. My great-grandmother um, was born the year slavery was abolished, and she became a teacher. She taught Paul Robeson and Roland Hayes. My my grandmother went to Ohio State when when white people were white women were not going at all to college. Um, and they didn't let black students live on campus. She was there with Jesse Owen. She became an AKA. And all of my mother's family stressed education for everyone. It was, it was on the forefront, education and voting. And my grandmother mm. worked so hard through voter registration, but I didn't know any of this. 
going to these private schools that they had sent me to, I had zero understanding of who I was. And if it wasn't for my mother's sisters, I, I, I would I would be living in a bubble of absolute ignorance and walking around claiming, well, because now that I'm a mix, so that doesn't qualify. And I think that mm-hmm. white America has done this with a lot of mixed kids. Um, well, now that you're half white, what they are doing is not you. This is black mm-hmm. America and you are now something new as opposed mm-hmm. to that we've been mixing since the 1600s. We've been mixing mm-hmm. for 400 years. Even, mm-hmm. even uh, Frederick Douglass, said that mm-hmm. 85% of the slaves on his plantation were the slave owner's kids. Okay. So we're dealing in this mixed society, but I see that, like, for me, I lived in, a, in, in this space of where mm-hmm. everyone told me it was okay to pass mm-hmm. and to erase this information. And the amount of work that I had to go through to find mm-hmm. out who, my, like, who I am, who are my people, because if you don't like black people to me, as my grandparents were very racist. You don't like mm-hmm. my mother. You don't like my aunts. My mother was brilliant. Why can't I celebrate her? My cousins, mm-hmm. my aunts are brilliant. I, you know, I, I should be able to hold that. And so mm-hmm. for me, it was, I would go to bookstores and there were no, there were no books in, mm-hmm. in a Barnes and Noble or a, a Borders bookstore. Um, so I'd have to go specifically to Harlem. Um, I love to travel. You're talking about going to Tulsa. I'm today in South Carolina at a friend's house, but I pulled off when I saw Selma. Mm. I couldn't not pull off. I didn't have the time. I wasn't racing to a show this time. And mm. it was, I, I want to see, and all these years I thought it was me, that mm. I didn't know my history until one day I was with my uncle and I had gotten a book and I had to be like 19 years old. It's a book called The Pictorial History of Black America. And I, mm. I sat down with my uncle, who was 85 years old, who was himself brilliant, won Tony Awards. He taught the Heinz mm. Brothers how to tap dance. And I've never mm. seen him just so taken back and almost scared to turn the pages like they would dissolve because he never saw his own history. And, and I, I really believe that what's going on with you know, critical race theory and, and America trying to stop it is really, if they can control the narrative that racism doesn't exist, they can continue the gaslighting that we've, that all of this thing of racism is just made up. You know, the, the attacks by the police is just made up. You know, I, I would have Italian family living one way and I would go to Washington, D.C. to visit my other fa- side of the family and everyone was living in a totally separate America. I and mean, when I left boarding school, I was a, I was a libertarian, I was a Republican, I didn't get it because I was able to pass and live in this white world, but yet I'm down in DC and going, wait a minute, this, how could this be happening? I don't understand that my, my cousins, my, my family are going through so much more of a struggle. And, and, and for me as a comedian, I had to, and you're talking about addressing this as a comedian, you know, when I did Def Jam, it was people were influencing me, like the guys up at the club were trying to, you know, influenced me on what jokes I should do. But when my mother's family saw some of the humor I I was putting out there, they were very upset with me because I worked very, very hard to control a narrative and to break stereotypes and to not have to live in playing this game that people also put a box of, I think a white woman goes into a black room and then she's got to act like she needs a black man and she's out there trying to get, you know, some people have actually said to me, like, just because I tell you I'm black does not mean I'm, I'm saying that, or I, I'm not rejecting you as a white man. 
<laughs> I'm not saying I'm, I'm pretending this because I'm trying to get a black man to sleep with me. I mean, that actually comes down to that level. Um, mm. And so I've actually had to learn in my own world of comedy that I have to be completely conscious of where I come from. And if I'm going to not pass, not to pass, then I need to really represent my people, my history, and be very cautious about what I put out there. And that's take, that took a long, it's taken a long time for me to come to that balance in comedy. Cause you know, I, I would always play, uh, you know, the black comedy rooms and I play the white rooms and I, and because I could be easily used as like a pawn by white America, you know, they wouldn't let JB smooth play the club, but they'll let Maya who's got 10 minutes and JB's got two hours of brilliance. We're not going to put him on stage, but you can come with us. And then eventually it's like, you don't have to talk about your family. Why does everything have to be black and white? Like I remember the comic strip, Lucian used to say, I don't know why everything, she doesn't see the world as going through life as a half black girl. Actually, yes, I do. The color line is that deep. But if we can continue to keep people ignorant and, and, and also shame us into not being proud of our history, I, am, I have never been more proud of anything in my life than I am of, of my mother. And so that, that's actually what's led me to understand why. I didn't understand why. Why, was, why should I be embarrassed of blackness? If the most brilliant people that I knew from my childhood and all I've ever seen was black Broadway and uh, Tony Award winning people and my mother's friends were like Tony Morrison or Donald McHale, the first black Tony Award uh, for a black director um, who ran Alvin Ailey. And I'm supposed to be ashamed of this, but I feel like I'm still, I'm still PC. And, and, and it's taken me a long time to understand that we are all still piecing together who we are. And when you have a sense of who you are, you really have a sense of, of pride. And, and also, it changes your trajectory of what you're supposed to do in your life and using your art and your creativity. And that's powerful because we're voices. We represent 400 years of where we should have been that we're all the way here. And there are people who come from money that can't get, they come from money, <laughs> education, and every privilege under the sun. They do not want to see, you know, and I, and I know this not because of, it's because of my life experience and being around everybody and being on the road to a Tulsa and doing shows there, not just staying in New York or being forced to go and perform an hour show in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the KKK capital, and there are guys in the audience with Confederate hats and they don't know what I am, and they're expecting a totally different show. The trick is, as a comic, how to still give them a show, but they have to come along because I have to be who I am. That's right. Have you performed in Tulsa? Yes, I have. Did you address it when you were there? No, at the time, I, when I first landed, it was, it was about maybe about eight to 10 years ago um, since I had done, not about eight years ago, or even six, but they, nobody talked about Tulsa. And a friend of mine, a comedian named Matt Lewis picked me up from the airport. He usually lives in LA and he told me the story. And while I was there, it was the first time I even heard of what happened in Tulsa. Mm. I mean, I don't understand that it's taken this long for us to celebrate Juneteenth. You know, I don't understand why it's taken this long, like the last two years, like, you know, growing up, nobody was, was celebrating these, these, these historic moments. But at the well, same some time, people it's were. Some Texas, people were, right? yeah. Well, not just Texas, actually. Buffalo, New York, is one of the third has one of the third longest 
running Juneteenth celebrations. I grew up in the 70s in Buffalo. And so I've been celebrating Juneteenth since I was three or four. Um, So there are some places that have, it's interesting why Buffalo would be one of those places. The only thing I can think is perhaps in part its proximity to Attica in upstate New York and the levels of of awareness that have existed, but in the in the as a whole, you're right. I mean, Maya, both of you, it has taken our country too long to celebrate um, or recognize. I should say, recognize, because I'm not really certain that I think we get caught up in the celebration of Juneteenth and forget what it really is about. Because if you really understood what Juneteenth was about, which is liberation of Black people, you wouldn't be celebrating because I'm not certain that we're a whole lot more liberated today That's right. than we were in 1867 uh, when when folks found out that they were freed from the formal bondages of enslavement, right? Um yeah, we have we've had a black president. We some of us have acquired wealth, but systematically, we're not a whole lot different than we were in the late 1800s and well into the Reconstruction era and then civil rights movement and so forth. Many of us are still bound, especially when you consider that being released from centuries of bondage, we were released with little, if not anything. Right. We were never given the 40 acres or a mule that we were promised. And now it sounds very cliche, 40 acres and a mule. But think about it. If we had been given the land that we were promised and we had been taught how to maintain that land over generations, there would be far more black people with some kind of wealth than the one or two that we hear about who are, you know, superstars, singers, actors, you know, politicians, what have you. You would have far more generational wealth. But here we are in 2022 and you have the likes of my colleague, um, Dr. Um, Nunnally, I believe, um, in Baltimore, um, Maryland, where, uh, you know, his house was appraised for like some half, almost close to half a million dollars less than what a white person occupying, believed to be occupying the house would have acquired. That should not still be happening at this late um, time in our historical career as America, or you wouldn't still have redlining and you wouldn't still have banks um, you know, denying Black people loans, right? So again, when you think about cosmetically, we are very much different than we were during periods of enslavement, cosmetically. But when you think about Tulsa and how Tulsa got started over the fact that a Black man allegedly said something to or assaulted a white woman, very similar to Emmett Till. And then there was this presumed or possible or perhaps actual lynching, right? How much different are we today when you have the likes of Ahmaud Aubrey being shot down in the street simply because he's Black, right? Or you have the likes of Breonna Taylor or Sandra Bland or Trayvon Martin. How how are these not modern day lynchings, especially when those who are um, who have perpetrated these crimes are able to walk away with impunity? Right. How free are we? How free are we? We think we're free because we have bank accounts and we have we drive fancy cars and we have lovely homes. But when you think about 
systemically where we stand, Maya, for example, you, you know, or either one of you going into a room with white comedians, you know your own particular experiences. I know my experiences being in the academy, in, in academia, um, being perceived and being told you shouldn't be here. And then feeling like you have to work two and three and four times harder to prove your abilities, whether you want to or not, whether you're deliberate or not. You know, um, we wouldn't have imposter syndrome, right? Or people saying, you know, um, how are we still uh, in situations where we can't rub two nickels together and create a dollar? So I think it's important we've come kind of full circle from knowing our histories to where we stand today. I'm not suggesting that Black people are not somewhat better off, but I think that becomes a foil. Critical race theory becomes a foil. It's a diversion from the real issues because critical race theory is not taught anywhere other than law school. Right. And perhaps for some of us at the doctoral level of education, nobody anywhere in K-12 is getting critical race theory. What you're getting is American history or social studies, and you're being told about things like Tulsa and Florida mm -hmm. and Farmville and, you know, all these different places. But or even red, then, red, you're not being it? told those There's stories. I mean, we area. could go through a whole list of Detroit, Chicago. You're being told these stories. Buffalo, you know, you're being given snippets. And most kids coming through K-12 are not even being taught that. So the, that's why I say it's a foil and it's a distraction because the yeah. average child is not even being taught those things at all. Yeah, I... I I, I was thinking too, as well as, as it's, it really is, it's a discussion. It's interesting because there's so few people that have their ears open in white America. And I feel like that's the trick when you talk about go, even going on stage to address things mm. from a stage standpoint, you know, it's different. I know if I looked, if white people thought that I was black, when I walked on stage, I, they prepare themselves mentally they put up a mental barrier already. They, they go into this different space and they hear you in one space. But when I'm in a space, they are themselves. They think I'm one of them. They'll say things to me thinking I'm one of them. And then it becomes almost a choice of it's almost like, like a gay comedian coming out of the closet of how am I going to say this? And when is it time? Because when I say it, it's so impactful when I just say that I'm, I'm black, my mother's black, is like taking a handful of super balls and dropping it. And then to get into the next joke, I almost, I have to catch them all at the same time because their reactions go into some white people even have shamed me that I, you know, I've made it up or I'm just trying to say that, or they try to act like they're offended for black people that I would come and make the, make the statement. Like I'm saying something that's racist that I would have been, there's so many mental traps, the psyche that, that like white consciousness has to defend off the idea that there is some level of inequality and it, and it's, and it's a, a narrative that is, it's almost, and it's weird because sometimes I'll have to address some white people that are closed up saying, you know, how did you know that were your grandparents slave owners or do you not know, or how do you know they weren't for the cause? How do you know they weren't running an underground railroad? How do you like, they automatically are so defensive that they can't let go 
to just hear it. And then with the news running these attacks on the critical race theory, like Fox News, <laughs> I have friends that, you know, like to, you know, secretly ask me questions. They're, you know, they're my friends' parents that, you know, my friends are like, oh, don't talk to them. My parents are, they're so racist and they say this wrong. I said, I'd rather have the conversation because the problem is they're not having the conversation. I know they want to hear themselves, but sometimes you can penetrate. But it's it's about penetrating that consciousness of, of white America to actually consider the idea that we're not having the same experience as they are. It's and also helpful convinced. for them, too. They don't realize how much of a disservice that their ignorance is for them and for the community. Like, you can't yeah. have ignorance in one area and then everywhere else. It just... It's a, it's like cancer. It affects. Yeah, but I'm not convinced the that whole. they. I'm not convinced that a lot of communities care. Um, well, no, I'm saying that I don't. It, I I know they don't care. I'm just saying they don't understand that their ignorance is actually a cancer for them. Right, but I guess what I'm saying is, I do think they understand. I think they don't care because. They don't care enough about all humanity. They care mm-hmm. about themselves. And at the same time that they care about themselves, the ignorance doesn't allow them to see the interconnectedness of our communities intricately, right? So this is how you end up with people voting against their own interests, right? Right. Voting against their own interests. But as long as we're not them, and I think in your realm, Chris Rock said it best, right? He was like, none of you want to trade places with me. And I'm rich, none of you, because blackness becomes a mark. Nobody wants to do that. I don't want to, I want his money, but I don't want to be him. I don't want to be a black man in America. Well, why not? Because you know what that means to be a black man, black woman, black person in America. No matter how wealthy you are, right? There's nothing that, you know, Jay-Z is not immune to being stopped if he's unprotected, especially, but even if he's riding in a car, I mean, his car could be stopped just like anybody else's, but he, you know, there's some who would consider him a mark, if you will. Oh my God, I arrested Jay-Z, Ooh, you know? So, I mean, I'm just throwing him out there. As, well, like you know, Kobe as, Bryant, what they or were Kobe just sharing Bryant, his photos, or, like he's- Absolutely. Yeah. Just to, you know? Um, so, you know, Audre Lorde, um, feminist writer, author, poet, said a long time ago in a different context about a different thing, your silence will not protect you. Well, that's no different now. Your silence will not protect you. You think it will, but it won't. So whether you speak up or you don't speak up, you're not going to be protected. So what do you have to lose? Yeah, I did say to the the young lady who was driving me to the venue or from the venue, she was uh, Asian American. And I said to her, why? Well, she was explaining to me that the festival is run by a billionaire. So they're not even really concerned about ticket sales. So if you're not concerned about ticket sales, then why am I, Marina Franklin, who is a headlining comedian that is well-known, well-established, 23, 22 years in, why am I the first show on a Saturday at six o'clock? And why am I not in the big room? If you're not worried about ticket sales, why is this comic, this white guy, I know him, he's great, but he's, he's featured it's it's very clear that he's being featured. She says, oh, well, you know, we had Nicole Byer years ago. That was her reply. Mm. I don't know, Maya. It just didn't seem like a, a good answer. And it also seemed like, oh, so you're saying I have to be Nicole Byer, who is 
I mean, she's actually younger than me as far as comedy goes. Yeah. She's just on TV more. So you're saying that I have to be a superstar because mm-hmm. this guy who's headlining, by the way, is not a superstar or as you're featuring is not a superstar. Uh-huh. But I, uh-huh. I, I'm i like, you need to say something. And, and there's a part of me that's like, I'm going to go back there <laughs> and make some noise up in it. It, it was just it was yeah. really. And then I was like, am I just angry right now i don't know i i've got to do my research you know i i I, for a very long time you know live dealing with both sides of my both worlds i slide back and forth and i used to go home to my aunt marlene all the time and convince her try to convince her that if if you know these people in white america had really understood that things would change and she said to me they don't care they just don't really, the truth is they don't care. They really don't care. And I felt like, I was like, well, that's so not true. And I remember getting all the way to Florida, same thing, you know, no matter what my TV credits are. And I also know that a lot of people are very upset were with me that if I just kept my mouth shut, didn't say anything, um, that I would have advanced as opposed to liking to tackle these issues. Um, and I'll make a make show funny, but it's also the level of where I go. But I remember being in Florida and finally just starting to get to that point where I was like, wow, Marlene was right. I truly believe they don't care. And I think that there's also a whole lot of people, not all, but there's a lot of people that enjoy having someone underneath them. They, but here's they, the thing, a level I, of them. I, I do think they care if they care about themselves, right? Like they care about themselves. So that's where you get them. Like you, you don't get even you get paid and then you also deal with their their pocketbooks right mm-hmm. how much business like what what we invest in like we have several articles about like you know how you can like black owned businesses knowing knowing where to put your money where not to put your money like if i go back to tulsa i'm not staying in that hotel not going to give them my money is they'd start losing money i think they do care when they lose oh yeah because then you're hitting them in the in the i mean we the montgomery bus boycott told us that a long time ago right Mm -hmm. um you know black people have an incredible amount as a community of economic power that is untapped and unrealized and if we would just sacrifice some things at times. We could change a whole lot of systems. But I want to go back to something you said about being angry. You should be angry about white mediocrity winning out over your over your accomplishments and your your hard work. And oftentimes that is what we do encounter. Mediocrity at best. That this is my whole point, right? That I just finished sharing. We have to often work two, three, four, five times as hard and as much just to get past the start line, right? Just to be able to get past the finish line or to get past the start line. And this is part of what Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who's one of the chief architects of critical race theory, um, talks about. She has a wonderful visual where she shows um, Black folks or um, at the black folks and white folks at the start line, right? And in front of the black runner, you've got all these hurdles, right? And in front of the white runner, it's a clear path. 
But the moment you give a black runner, you clear their path, then we're accused of affirmative action. We're accused of reverse racism. We're mm-hmm. And the reasons that mm-hmm. people are able to get away with those ridiculous arguments is because they're not looking at the visual. They don't really care about the visual. They don't even really care about the truth. All they care about is the perception, right? That black folks are somehow getting a larger piece of the pie. I saw, I see something circulating on social media that says, you do understand that equal rights for me does not mean less rights for you. Mm-hmm. And and the reality is, no, I don't think people do see that because they're told that somehow if I'm able to get the same achievements that you're able to get, I might actually get ahead of you, not because I'm being given more, but because I have the ability to do more and to do better. And by God, to think that black folks may somehow be smart. Now you're talking about you know, a whole different wave of problems. And, and just to add, add to that, th- there was a young lady who came up to me after my set. She said, I'm going to I want to cry because I was told years ago when I was here that the only reason I'm on this festival is because I'm black. Mm. And. I was just not stunned, but I, after that, I was like, yeah, all these feelings I've had is legitimate, you know, cause you like the gaslighting, you wonder, am I really feeling this? Is this real? Is this going on? Is and even talking to the young Asian woman, I could see her fear. She didn't know what to do in that moment, but I'm glad I said something. Cause I was like, you, you know, take it with you, say it to somebody else. Um, because I, I was I was still trying to understand why I was on a six o'clock show on a Saturday and the comic who had been doing it far less than me was on a later show. Actually had opened for me years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at this. I'm like, what's this about? Is this an accident? What's going you on know, here? My uncle, um, Henry Latang, who uh he choreographed the movie Tap and Cotton Club and Sophisticated Ladies in Black and Blue. And he taught the Heinz brothers. And, he, you know, he would call it overqualified. He said, you know, things in my mother's career, overqualified. You think they want, uh, you know, a beautiful woman that can come in and sing in seven languages. And Lena Horne had her thrown out of a show when she understudied her once because there was one position. Otherwise, back in my mother's day, you had to, there were no, there were no roles. So you had one uh, Liza Minnelli had her thrown out of Carnegie Hall. You know, mm-hmm. you're talking about, you know, when you come and you are overqualified, but that's how you were raised. Cause I was raised as a little kid on, on the, on the black Broadway scene. And they taught you, taught us, me and my sister and my cousins, as we lived in the tap studio and my mother taught voice lessons, you better sing like hell. You better dance like hell. You better play an instrument. You better be able to do some stand up. Like Gregory Hines was the perfect example of being able to do everything. He played drums in, in sophisticated ladies. People didn't know he could drum, he could sing, he could tap. Every single one of those performers that came up during in show business were all taught to, to do everything. Um, when I was a little kid, I booked a movie called Cotton Club. And my uncle was a choreographer as well on it. And my sister You're ended up Cotton as a Cotton Club, Club girl. Yeah, oh. they, 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 we had a big number and they pulled, they went $60 million over budget and they ended up putting the dancers and, and drummers. I was a, a kid drummer in, um, in a, a grand central scene, but we were on set for six months 
And what was really interesting, it was supposed to be about the exploitation of black artists. And then Coppola came in to direct it and wanted to turn it into like another Godfather picture. And Uncle Henry had done a number that was like a Nicholas Brothers number with with Hinton Battle and Greg Burge. And it, he kept the doors locked whenever he choreographed this number. It was like phenomenal. They're flying and dancing through the floors and everybody was able to do it in one take. He did two takes for safety. Uh, Greg Burge snapped his ankle on the second take. You wouldn't even have known. He went and still had to do sophisticated ladies in Europe. Coppola went, okay, next, next shot after the number. Richard Gere wanted to be a trumpet player. So they cut, moved the camera to Richard Gere. And he plays like six notes, and he gets up, he jumps up and gives, gives Richard Gere a standing ovation. Meanwhile, the greatest dancers, I mean, the Nicholas Brothers were on set. Yes, I remember. The you scene. know, uh, Cab Calloway was there all the time. Cab worked with with um, Larry Marshall. So you're talking about, you know, it, it, it's oh, my uncle when he choreographed Sophisticated Ladies. With Gregory Hines, Greg Burge, uh, Judith Jamison, uh, Donald McHale was the director. One of the greatest, greatest uh, tributes to, to Ellington. But instead of the choreography award going to Uncle Henry, they gave it to Gower Champion that year. They called everyone at six o'clock. Gower Champion did time steps, which time steps in white America, a lot of, not, not like, a, there's a couple great white tap dancers that really could dance with like tip, tap, and toe. And, but this was like the times that, that was time. That, meanwhile, these, the other guys are doing splits and flips and sliding. It's just the most phenomenal. But they, they called everyone in at six o'clock and said, okay, um, we're giving away. We didn't want to give Gower Champion a special award, which they should have done or tribute. They just gave him the choreography award. And so, and if you stand up, even with Black and Blue, they, my uncle did Black and Blue on um, Broadway, but he did the entire show um, in um, Paris. And when he came back to, to bring it to Broadway, they took one number, like four, three other numbers from the show to diminish his power and gave him to three other choreographers each to do one number, even though Uncle Henry did like 11, because he's standing up against the producers for the dancers and the mistreatment of some of the, of the performers. So, you know, there comes a level of, do you stay quiet and be wise and rise and know when it's time? Or do you sometimes be smart and quiet and get to a place? So for you to not say something in Tulsa, you know, you are representing us. And that's enough. You go in and yeah. you kill, that is enough. Yeah. Because once you get into a place, where you can make the difference. I mean, you make the difference every time you walk into a room. I mean, I don't think you realize how powerful you are as a female, as a comedian, period, before female, before black. You carry yourself, Marina, with such grace and poise and intelligence that oh, every nice. stereotype that they have tried to trap every other comedian in, you've risen above. I, I do and want that to jump is, in. That here. is the work. Thank you, Maya. Sorry. I agree, and absolutely you cry. <laughs> I do just want to clarify, um, Maria, that I want to clarify Audre Lorde's point about your silence will not protect you, because it could sound contradictory to what you're saying, and and I don't want that to be the case. Of course, as Black people, we need to, you always have to calibrate 
your space. You got to calibrate your time. You got to calibrate what the risks are. I think what Lord was saying is that be very clear in all of this, that if you have the opportunity to speak and you don't, the outcome could be the same. She wasn't saying be stupid. <laughs> she was saying, right, right, be right. clear, be clear on it, <laughs> be yeah. clear, yeah. right. That you sometimes, you know, you have to figure out what your space is, is what I think she was yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely the battle that was in me. That was not going on with anyone else. I think that was, and I do remember, you know, what was really great about today though, to put a positive spin on this experience that I had was I was in it in the night before I went into a green room to hang out with one of the comics, my friend is white. And most of the guys in the room were white. And this one white guy, you know, you could feel energy. He wasn't trying to talk to me. He wasn't trying to say, oh, I know who you are, Marina Franklin. Nothing. I could tell. I just felt his energy. He was old boy, old school white guy who wants to exclude the woman in the room. And I sat with that. And my friend was like, oh, Marina, you're regretting that you came out tonight. And I was like, well, I'm just sitting here, just taking it all in. Two seconds later, a black woman enters the space with me. And she's like, Marina Franklin, I love your work. I love you. And she starts talking. And and two, right after that, another, a white woman enters the room. And she's like, oh, Marina. And she's talking too. And she's in part, part of the conversation. Now a guy comes into the room and he's also talking to me. Now I look over at this white guy who was in all his glory before, totally destroyed, can't maintain the energy that he was trying to create in this space. It was done. And this is what I'm saying is today, the positive thing that is happening is we're in these rooms now and you may try as much as you want, but it's not going to last. I saw him leave the space. Actually, he couldn't take it, could not take it. <laughs> and I was like, well, there, this is where we are today. And it was a beautiful it was a beautiful moment. Now, I love this quote that you posted on your Facebook page. Um, Dr. Psyche, where it says, with all due respect, please read this and then read it again, then teach it to your children and grandchildren. History is not there for you to like or dislike. It is there for you to learn from it. And if it offends you, even better, because then you are less likely to repeat it. It's not yours to erase or destroy. And I just thought I, because you posted that on your Facebook and I love that. Thank you. It It actually was a post that came across my uh, one of my feeds and yeah, and I just thought it, it, it was spot on, right? All of this mumbo jumbo about, you know, what we should be teaching and shouldn't, I mean, history is not a game. It's, it's what happened, right? Um, it, it's just like the whole notion of revisionist history, you know, it's not a revision in, in the sense that you're trying to act as if we've created something new. It's a revision in the sense that we're telling you what happened because you've deliberately left major parts out of the story, you know? And so in my book, you know, I talk about this as a, in my book, Eating While Black, I talk about this around the notion that if you start the story with the problem and Black people being the problem, then you're going to always get 
a particular type of response. But if you start the story with our success, now you've got a different story. So for example, when people talk about Black food cultures, we always hear a lot about, oh, Black, you know, we came from scraps and blah, blah, blah. And I understand that. And I I don't criticize it because people are really trying to speak to our resilience. But you know what I'm saying in this book? We can talk about our resilience and not have us eating the worst of the worst. Here are other ways you could talk about our resilience. If you understand that those who came through the mouth of enslavement were not um, Black people we see today. You had hundreds of thousands of tribes of Black folks from the continent of West Africa, Central Africa, right? If you understand that we came with particular knowledges of agriculture, part of the reason we were brought here was racial, absolutely, but it was also economic. It was about building a new country with free labor, labor that did not have to be considered, labor that could be abused and mistreated, free labor. That's why we talk about Black folks built this country, right? If you start with that and really sit with that, oh my God, we built this country? We actually built the, helped build the railroads along with the Chinese. We built cotton fields. We built and planted, you know, um, tobacco. We built wealth for other people. And all the while we were told, you're not this, you're not that. You can't do this. You can't do that. Your religion is stupid. Your food is dumb. You're this is that. You're ugly. You're that. But all the things I've already said. So my point simply is that start the story with what we brought to this country. Now you have a whole different concept and question and conversation that does not rely upon us eating scraps. If you're surrounded by woods and trees and you are an agriculturalist, you cannot tell me we didn't know how to go into the woods and forage. We are the original foragers along with indigenous people. We know how to eat from the land. We know how to plant. We know how to vend. We know how to cook, some of us, right? So my point simply is that you have to change the narratives to where it's not always reliant upon what we've been told, but it expands out to include what we know about ourselves by way of the histories of our culture. Now, you posted also along with that, you're going into so many of the topics that I, I can't even get to the, it's like, I have, I have you here. So I don't really have to read my little blurb for my articles. Cause you're like more informative than I've, I, I have my interns. They're going to be like, she didn't do the article I put in, but there's, there's something that you put in your, um, and looking at your stories too, about a farming partnership in, is it called Brandywine plans to fight, Prince George's County food desert, a new 36 acre farm will use non-traditional methods to produce fresh livestock, fish mm-hmm. and vegetables year round. Mm-hmm. Did I say that? Is it brandy wine? Brandy wine. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's it. Where is that? Brandy wine, Maryland is uh, not too. It's in, I think it's uh, just outside of Prince George's County. It's no, it's actually in Prince George's County. Um and it's it's so it's a have you know Prince George's County is one of the largest in terms of per capita income um, black communities in the nation. Uh, we're located 
we're not a suburb of DC. We're actually <laughs> we're actually a county in 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 Maryland. But of course, our proximity to DC is about 15, 20 minutes, depending upon your entry point into the city. Um, and so you do have a number of communities out there who are engaged in uh, uh, community-supported agriculture, and uh, we're located near, very, very closely located to waterways. So I'm glad you brought that up because, see, this is, again, one of those stories. So being in a predominantly Black community, we figure out ways to be resilient to get at the food cultures that we we know and we uh, practice, right? And so often I'm, I'm asked by people, how can we help people start their own community garden? And I'm like, well, you probably first should ask them, them being black communities, if they want you in their space creating a garden because they may already have two or three. Um, the other thing that I think it's important for us to think about is that grocery stores are not panaceas for they're not the end all to be all for how you acquire food. Black and brown people acquire food in different ways. We have bodegas, we have corner stores, we have grandmama's pantry, we have cousins, you know, cupboard. Um, and so we do have food insecurity, but not all of the reasons are because we don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Nobody has access really like we want them to. Some of us have a little bit more access. Some of us with wealth don't eat the best diets. We eat a lot of fast and processed food because we can. There are lots of different ways that people acquire food. That Black folks tend to be the ones who are demonized around food, I think, is a problem. And it's part of that single story narrative that we need to eliminate. So what they're doing here in Brandywine is trying to come up with a more holistic way of providing food to and for the residents of the county and certainly the residents of that area. And I think we need to applaud that because how we acquire food um, in our communities should be multifaceted. There should never just be one option, uh, whether that be your farmer's market, your grocery store, or, um, or your community garden. We need all of them to be able to satisfy. And then we need some other services. For example, we need our elderly um, who are uh, sick and infirm to be cared for in a way that would encourage them to eat on a daily basis, right? That's right. Yeah. We need our young people who may be living in situations where they don't get the kind of sustenance that they need to be able to either go to school or to a community center and to be able to eat with or without providing any kind of money and not feeling shame because they have to eat a bologna or a cheese sandwich. We have a lot of different scenarios there that beg for us to think broadly about how we talk about food and feeding. I love that because, you know, especially in the schools, we learned through the pandemic how important. I never thought that schools were that important to feeding our children our mm -hmm. black and brown children specifically like mm -hmm. they were still handing out food when the schools were to. closed right because mm -hmm. that's the meal that many children get right i mean i've had students one in particular who i remember saying you know growing up he was like i i thought captain crunch was the only food that there was you know because he said because my mom worked a lot and she worked to try and get us a better life but that meant we were left with a lot of times with cereal he was like, then one day she moved us out into the suburbs of Maryland 
And we actually went to a store that offered more options, you know. Um, and sadly, even though we have one of the wealthiest counties here, again, per capita income, we have way too many children who are experiencing that type of life, not just in our county, but throughout the nation. Um, in one of the most progressive countries in the world, we should not be having children who don't have food to eat or elderly people who sometimes choose between taking medication um, or not because they don't have food or they don't have companionship. So they have no desire to eat. We should not be living like that in this nation. And it's the fact that we do, it's a travesty and a shame. And I'll say again, when we talk about freedoms, those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. How free are we if we have so many people who are not? But that's part of capitalism, right? We, In order for capitalism to survive, you need have and have nots. Um, and so all this talk about socialism uh, from people who don't understand what socialism is and who could stand a dose of socialism goes back to our conversation about willful ignorance. Because as long as I'm not you, I'm okay to live this way. And that's that's shameful because we have our generational, uh, our children who are suffering because of it. That makes me appreciate my cousin um, in Ohio. She owns, uh, she started two charter schools in um, in underprivileged communities. And she actually, we, we bought, uh, I, I was selling these hydroponic growers mm -hmm. that she put into her school for the kids to actually grow all kinds of, they'll stand that you can put them indoors. You can move them in, in and outside and they're a big tube and you can plant. And so all the kids were learning um, all the gardening in with all those hydroponic planters. I just mm -hmm. think that's a fabulous idea. Mm -hmm. And I encourage people to do that. And while you're showing children how to grow, I think we should also work to the strengths of those students who have a better aptitude for finances and you teach them how to become entrepreneurial so entrepreneurs so that they now can sell what those folks are growing. I do think we should still continue with home economics and nutrition because you're now teaching these people to cook what these people grow, what those people can sell, because everybody has a different strength. And so part of my challenge in eating while black, part of my challenge to folks is to think broadly about the food systems because they're certainly thinking broadly about you. And so while we're channeling everyone, this is nothing against your cousin. I'm, I'm saying in general, this is my argument in the book. Because I used to hear so many people who would come to me and say, how do we get people to grow their own food? And I'm saying some people are growers. Some people are entrepreneurs. Some people, as I said, are phenomenal with baking and cooking. Right. Um, and then some people are better as taste testers, if you will, or or just really wanting to eat. And that's OK. We need all of that, right? So our young people need to know the full scale of growing from soup to nuts. How do you harvest your own seeds, right? How do you, mm. how do you propagate? How do you, so we need all of those skills and, and not to just stop short at this is how you grow, right? Because you have yep. to also know when to harvest properly. And so I, I, I like to encourage people to say, how do you start a farmer's market? Because we could have young people starting their own, Ooh. right? How do you know how to do that? That takes a bit of entrepreneurial know-how. Perhaps you need to learn how to write a grant. There's so many different ways that we can contribute to these food conversations. And I just want to encourage Black folks in particular, but everyone in general, to do that very thing.
That is amazing. I, I'm so glad you said that because so many people listening to this are going to, I always say when we have these conversations, not to just, you know, get emotional about it, but also offer real solutions. It took me having full disclosure, you know, breast cancer three years ago to really start to think about food in that way. It took a long time. I'm like over 50 and it took <laughs> it took me a long time to realize, oh, I haven't really thought about what I put in my body. Why? Where am I getting my food from? All of the things that you talk about started to come in. Like as I start to educate myself about food, I started to find that I go to different places to get food. Like I go, I go to Whole Foods, but I also go to, I found out there's a farmer's market in Harlem that I've been here for years and didn't know about. There's, mm. there's several farmer's markets actually. There's one on 110th Morningside. That is just a great farmer's market. I have these conversations with the different vendors. I met a young, woman who was actually on the podcast that's out currently who deals with essential oils and soaps. And so I'm having these, these real community conversations about food that I net or just products that I never had before. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm starting to do that homework because I had cancer. It took that. And, and that's really mm -hmm. important that many of us will have a catalyst in our life. I would also say as well, that, you know, one of the conversations I have in the book is, is about a woman who calls herself the Dollar Diva. And she's from Philadelphia. And she talks about how she shops at the Dollar Tree. And I, for years, have been talking about this. It's in my, in my final chapter of the book, which is called Eating in the Meantime, because not everyone can afford farmer's markets. Let's be very clear. They're not growing up Farmer's markets for us were roadside. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, but I also grew up in rural Virginia. So for us, a farmer's market was a roadside stand where you could get a full thing of tomatoes for a couple of dollars. So the first time I went to a farmer's market and took like $50 and only got maybe three things, I was blown away. Mm. Um, so we have to be also cognizant that we need food sources for people at all financial strata, right? And so why can't you shop at the Dollar Tree or a dollar market and someplace else, right? Or, and, you know, um, use food that has been given to you from a community food source or what have you, right? Because this country is not set up for all of us to succeed, honestly. It's mm -hmm. not. That's right. It, it wasn't built that way. All right. So then when we who are in positions of success start dictating to those who are not how and where and when they it should be eating, we are limiting those people's ability not only to thrive, but also to find joy. What do you say to people who are my, who have migrated to this country for whom a whole different set of foodways is a way of life? You can't eat this. You can't eat that. Now you're telling those people they can't survive survive. They can't right. thrive. Yes. All right. So I need us to keep our conversations about food very fluid, very open, very non-judgmental so that people acquire food the way that they have to. Because I do live with someone for whom if they don't eat, they cannot take their medication because their medication affects their body, right? In particular ways. Oh. And so therefore the, the different things that I have to help them think through that they can eat on the fly in preparation, what have you, 
right? Becomes a real food challenge in my home. And I would say lots of us are living in that situation. Lots of us. So if the bodega or Mr. Cole's grocery store down the street who will give you credit is the only place that you can get food, have at it. Because in the meantime, while we want for everybody to eat in these perfect ways, folks have to live and survive and be able to do what they have to do so they stay alive. Whether that's taking high blood pressure medication, mental health medication, medication, diabetes medication, or just simply fulfilling their fine, uh, hunger needs for the day. I have had my nieces slap me into awareness about trying to tell them what to eat. <laughs> and, and, you know, because this generation, this younger generation is so much better at talking about this than our mm -hmm. generation. My nieces will say, Titi, don't, please don't tell me what I can eat and, and how I should eat. Like, this is what I want right now. And I'm so glad that you're coupling that conversation with like the farmer's market because it's not discussed. I mean, I've even had my young interns on here. They one time told me, they said, you know, you that's diet culture, what you're doing. And I was like, what? Well, we came up, I mean, we're of the same age. So we came up during the era of Jane Fonda. And, you know, this is what thinness looks like. And we were pressured in that, the cottage cheese and pineapple. But, you know, I just want to say one final thing. Along with all those conversations, we want to remind people of how to live healthy. Okay, because most of the time when people are like, how do we get people to eat healthy? No, I don't want you to eat healthy. I want you to live healthy. I want you to figure out ways to de-stress your mind, right? Because this world and social media will have you crazy as a loon, right? I want you to figure out ways that if that means you got to walk your puppy, your dog, your cat, whatever, or you just have to sit in full silence for a moment. I want you to figure out how to do that. Maybe move your body in a way if it's only 20 minutes in front of the... My point simply is we should be talking about wellness as a full picture, right? And not just about diets. And I say this all the time and I'll continue to say it because I can eat the best diet and still walk out my bedroom and get shot in my own house by a political and economic and, and, and force of, of control being the state who has decided I'm selling drugs imaginary or not, or whatever I am, and I'm shot dead, right? Because of the color of my skin. So while we are living in this moment, especially now where the virulence against our civil rights and our personal rights is, is in full attack as women, as, as people of color, we also need to not worry so much about food and think about our entire ecosystem of health and wellness and how we can stay sane in this moment of craziness that many of us thought we would never see and too many of us as elders are reliving. Yes. I'm just thinking uh, it, these ideas of, um, you know, eating well and, and also mental health. That's why I, I kind of enjoy being in California. You go into the dollar store and they have tons of produce. Um, you can go into the Mexican communities and they have, they have, and their produce is even better than what you get at the top top dollar stores. There's constant access to good, uh, for fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. And then you're talking about, you know, when you brought it the mental health and putting down the phones and not looking at your iPhone. I, I love the story of the students in California that are the Silicon Valley kids that go to private schools. And if their parents are high up the chain in, in the world of computers and iPhones, and they're, they're at schools where they're not allowed to touch their phone. Right. Like, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs said that he was the kids, his kids were not allowed to have iPhones and iPads right, right, because you're right. going to be mentally advanced. But it's mm -hmm. interesting to see this, the best of the best 
elitist schools are removing um, the kids mm-hmm. from cell phones and mm-hmm. um, keeping that out of their lives. And, and, and mm-hmm. it does make like the most peaceful time in my life is when my iPhone breaks. Like I'm upset <laughs> for the first, you know, hour. Then I'm like, oh, Ooh, I'm Thank so stress free and happy. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. No, yeah. I, I actually, I actually pretend it's broken a little bit longer than it is. Just so <laughs> I have an excuse not to contact anyone. Yeah. So but it's so, so powerful it's what funny. you're saying. So mm-hmm. to go to one, uh, one of these articles, well, I'll go to a few of them. This article says, Dear Fat Black Girls Who Were Not Spared from Diaculture, I Understand, Healthline by Jess Sims. Jess Sims mm-hmm. discusses the idea of the strong Black woman in diaculture as a fat Black woman. A study by Washington Post and Kaiser Foundation essentially concluded that due to the acceptance of fatness in the Black community, fat phobia was less of an issue. Sims points out how dangerous this line of thinking is and also notes how fat is unfairly accepted in some parts of the body, um, hips, thighs, butt, chest, and not in in others. Fat phobia is historically rooted in white supremacy and its Mm -hmm. effects are still felt today. Sims discusses her own eating disorder and how black women are less likely to receive care for eating Mm -hmm. disorder recovery. Black women are also underrepresented in eating disorder clinical trials, making proper resources and care difficult to find. Sims concludes with the sentiment that diet culture is a global institutional problem that affects everyone, but also urges non-Black people to stop perpetuating the idea that fat Black women are self-confident, strong Black women, and that alone. I actually talked about mm-hmm. that in my special in the opening beat about how don't call me a strong black woman. That sounds like work. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like doing work. <laughs> yeah. And so. I mean, you know, that goes back to our, our our conversations today. You know, when I was growing up, I think it was in the early 80s. I'll never forget the image of um, Cicely Tyson as um, I think it was in her appearance in the film, they call her Moses, maybe, or Moses. And at the end of the film, they strap her to a mule's harness and they ask her to walk through a field for the amusement of, of the white folks who were there. And it was a very painful um, piece to watch, right? Um, and that was because she had displayed some measure, small measure of confidence and arrogance that they they put her on display in this way. And it goes back to what Zora Neale Hurston, anthropologist and author, would say, Black women are the mules of the world, right? We carry all of this stuff on our back. But here's the reality, as we know. Um, Black women hurt. We experience joy. Um, we've experienced pain. Why is it that we are asked to somehow shoulder the burdens, right, of of other people as if we are not, as if we are suprahuman as opposed to just being who we are? And so I agree with that author. I do a read of a young Black woman uh, in my book, Eating While Black. I do a read of a young Black woman who was featured in a Washington Post expose on obesity. And I focused in on this young woman's story in part because I have a daughter who was around the same age as she during that time. And my own daughter experienced comments, um, not at all obese, but um, she has she has hips in, in shape like her birth mother. And so to be told for a whole slew of young Black children to be told half of you all are obese and won't live to see a different age, it's just number one. And to be told this by a health professional is 
is an abomination, especially when you're in elementary school, right? Right. Because talk about leading young people into eating disorders. But this young woman's story was fascinating because of the way in which she was portrayed in the images in the expose that was done by the Washington Post. And I talk about it in detail in the book. One of the things I wanted to point out here that I say in this narrative, in all of these conversations, there were so many pieces that were missed that may have shed some light on part of the reason that this young woman was as full-figured as she was at the age of 12, from the trauma of foster care to the death of numerous loved ones. She could have been on mental health medication, some of which like Abilify, which will have you gaining all kinds of weight, but just different things like that, that we don't tend to examine when we're talking to people. Right. Because we're a we feel like we're we are so capable of looking at individuals and deciding this is their life. Mm. You're fat because you want to be you're this because you want your exercise. We don't know what people go through every day (laughs) from the moment before they get out the bed, some of whom could be stuck and can't get out the bed. You know, some of whom are living every day with all kinds of life traumas. So our ability to get on social media in particular and just hurl insults at each other as if we're not human and all should be walking through this life more gently than we do until we get to the other side of Jordan or wherever we find ourselves when our earthly bodies leave here and our spiritual selves leave here. Who does that? That is not a culturally speaking If you study African religions, that is not who we were and it shouldn't be who we are. Yeah, my sister has lupus. So when she was on medication, it made, you know, the steroids. Yeah, steroids. I constantly was concerned about people saying things, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was with the trainer at the time who would make comments about people's bodies while we were out. And I was like, what are you doing? What are and you people doing? Don't like, you don't know what they're going through. You have no and idea. And you don't know that could stop somebody from wanting to take necessary medication. That's right. Because yeah. they don't want to be ridiculed. Mm. They don't want to be thought of as I'm 12, but I, I, I have the body development of a 14 or 15 year old. Mm. I mean, we don't, often don't understand the harm we do with our own personal thoughts that aren't informed by anything other than what we see. And I shouldn't say that. And what white America has taught us that this is the supreme definition of beauty. Up until about what, five years ago, the only vision of beauty we saw was the thin, super thin, hipless, buttless, breastless woman. I don't care what size the clothes are. They all look like they were size two. And we all, many of us ascribe to be that. So I'm thankful for if for no other reason, the Beyonce's or the Lizzo's or the, who said that, that's not real. Missy Elliott, you know, Queen Latifah, black women who are like, this is who I am. You know, Monique, you know, now I'm not saying that exercising and, and losing weight is not a beautiful thing. Absolutely it is, if that's what works for you. But let's not presume that because a person's body does not look like the epitome of these other images, that it's deliberate. There are so many reasons that Black folks have different body shapes, especially Black women, from childbirth 
to medication, to lack of exercise, um, to any number of traumas that we could name that affect people's bodies, minds, and souls. And I think there was um, a white woman who had spoke about Lizzo or a while ago. I remember it was on some news story. I can't remember who. This is why I kind of suck. I don't have the I don't have the names. <laughs> but I remember her saying, talking. She's like, I'm just worried about health and diabetes. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about weight gain. I, I can't talk about that anymore. And I just realized from this conversation, you you don't even understand the ignorance. That's that's what's going on here is you don't you don't she's not listening to what you've just said. She doesn't understand the historical the the history behind all of this is mm-hmm. is so important. It really is. Um, you know, on social media, there's a piece that circulates where uh, Toni Morrison, right, of author extraordinaire, Toni Morrison is being interviewed by a white interviewer. And the white interviewer says, is there ever a time, something to the effect of, is there ever a time that you would center white characters? And I love Toni Morrison's response because she says, you cannot imagine how incredibly racist that statement is. Because you would never ask a white author to center Black characters. Nor would you even read a book or a novel and say there are no, you know, Black characters in this white person's novel. Mm -hmm. And I liken that to your statement by that, that woman you cannot imagine how incredibly racist it is to presume that you understand my life or to assume that because I have additional pounds on my body, I'm somehow plagued by any or all of those diseases. When I say to people all the time, you have these boutique food experiences out on these make-believe farms where folks will go and drink and eat to excess all kinds of pork products, every conceivable part of the pig from the ear to the snout to the tail and drink all kinds of bourbons and wines and so forth for an entire weekend. And they live their lives in this way. And yet we don't see that as somehow problematic because those people may or may not have extra weight, but they have fatty livers. You just can't see it. Or their colons are impacted, but you may not be able to tell it, you know. So our the ways that we measure people's bodies by our visuals is so wholly problematic and to me rooted in anti-Black racism, quite frankly. COVID exposed so much. I know that's a whole other, that's another show. But it also, it brought up so many issues that we saw was going on um i love this story and then i want to applaud maya on her special i want to say this rhode island mayor seeking 10 million in reparations for black and indigenous communities this is by the root candace 
McDuffie. On Thursday, Providence Mayor George Alorza proposed a 10 million spending plan for federal coronavirus pandemic aid. The city's reparations commissions recommended that the funded programs cover small business development, workforce training, and financial literacy home ownership. The Democratic mayor's plan also consists of dedicating 400,000 to support Black and Native American residents displaced and negatively impacted by urban renewal, 500,000 to expand the guaranteed income program for low-income residents that started last summer and 250000 to a legal defense fund for residents dealing with eviction. That's huge. In addition, mm-hmm. Alorza also signed an executive order in which the city of Providence formally apologized for its role in slavery and other racist and discriminatory practices. And mm-hmm. uh, he is currently awaiting for the spending proposal to be approved by the city council. Mm-hmm. So I just I wanted mm-hmm. to read that just so you know, there are things set in motion, even with Tulsa, as we see that other story of the judge allowing the lawsuit by a Tulsa race massacre survivor. So the work is not done, and but we're doing the work, which is, yep. I think it's a good way to sort of end this conversation. That's and, right. Just right. to know that mm-hmm. it's going in the right direction. We got a lot of people out there who who are smart and doing that work. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. And Maya, I am so happy about your special. Maya, Maya, oh. Maya. Maya. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm grateful. It was, it was, I'm, I'm glad it got done. <laughs> yeah. It's on Amazon and um, okay. Apple TV. And that was actually an interesting you want to talk about a, a, a interesting race situation where I had um, taped the special. It was they they were they gave me a very narrow window to do this. It was right after COVID, and mm-hmm. um, I decided to do material that wasn't attached to my show called Incognito. That is really truly my family story. So I said, let me go back and get try to design something different. I hadn't even run mm-hmm. that material. I had about six shows, and I only got one shot of taping the hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mm-hmm. audience was incredibly, they were just very not expecting me. Um, but I, you know, I, I set it up in a way that I, I kind of did. I didn't want to make the whole thing about race. Cause I have other pieces, a lot more focus on mm-hmm. race. And, um, but I got into my family when, so it always comes out when you get to my family in the middle at the end of 75 minutes, the director says, can you go back out and tell them that you're black? <laughs> and my yeah i was like uh but i don't want to be you know i have a history of standing up for myself so i'm like no yes sir whatever you say so i went back out and i started this whole show from it was weird it was a very strange start um and at the end of the show they said can you send us pictures of your parents and so um they also taped coco brown and bill bellamy so i called coco i said were you did you have to send pictures of your parents and she's like no what are you talking about they asked for pictures of my parents I guess to see if I was like playing that Rachel Dolez or something like, like literally oh. that I had to turn in pictures of my parents at the end of the special. I said, mm. if you want, if you want mm. my mother's um, birth certificate that says Negro on it too, I can send that. My manager's like, don't get snarky. Don't get snarky. <laughs> it was just the most bizarre thing. So, but um, we have, my manager did a tremendous job with the edits and, and Robert Townsend also helped gave me notes and, but nice. the, it was it was a little weird because in the beginning it's like, hey everybody, with this big energy. Hi everybody, could you believe I'm black? And then, <laughs> <laughs> so so please forgive the front. But otherwise, yes, I'm very excited about the special. But it was it's just it's always it's very it's always um mm-hmm. it's always something. 
I'm glad it's but, out too. And I'm, yes, I'm you yeah. know, because Maya, like I was saying, you didn't hear it before, but I was saying that you are one of the comics when I first started that I looked up to that I was just like, you were just a beast on stage. You had the best set I've ever seen on Def Jam. It was killer. And I just like seeing the ones that I looked up to still shining mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and doing this craft because comics, we, if you really are a comic, you don't stop doing it. I don't know. Somehow mm-hmm. the industry started to get into like these younger comedians and I'm like, no, no, you get funnier as you get older. <laughs> yeah. I, saw, I, I, quit, I did. I did quit for a lot of years and, and it was Robert Townsend who was like, you're not doing anything but comedy and you're going back. And he yelled at me. Yeah, I didn't even know him. And he was like, you need to write comedy specials and you have to get back out there. And you can't, you know, I kept saying, well, everybody's against me and no one's going to help me. And this and that. And he said, you know, he said, you know, that said that basically God guy has your opportunities. You can't look at man to create opportunities because you may see walls and you may mm-hmm. get nose everywhere. But if you mm-hmm. truly believe who's in control, uh, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not us that's in control. You just take mm-hmm. the, the faith steps to do the best you can do and opportunities mm-hmm. will open up. And um, that's right, definitely, right. you know, a, a demonstration of just faith mm-hmm. and um, taking the step and not knowing where the, where it's going to come from. So I am grateful to that's the team, right. even, even though it was a little weird with the, huh, why well, I got to turn into person mm-hmm. again? Yeah. Well, you are fearless and please never stop because you have a point of view and a voice that is, it's strong. It's a strong point of view. That's what I learned from you. So please never stop please thank you thank you Um, i'm so grateful to be back so we're gonna we're gonna get out and what i do at the end of each show and you already did it maya so i'll start with you is to let our listeners know where they can find you you can find me on social media at million dollar maya um also um i have my new special on amazon prime called maya 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 and um with friends like us you realize that good and truth still have a way to get out there and resonate and empower us all to change the world and hone in on what our special unique skills are to help change the world and make it better love it oh my god first timer and you killed it of course you did (laughs) thank you and dr psyche can you tell our listeners where they can find you thank you both again so much yes so you can find me on social media at P.A. Williams Forsen or Building Houses 9, depending upon which social media you use. You can also find me on Amazon under Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America, or Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women Food and Power. And with friends like us, you can have great food conversations and you can also do what my former neighbor Rachel Voss says find your free through liberation and joy in eating good food oh you oh my god you both are amazing this was such a good conversation our listeners are going to get so much out of this thank you so much marina franklin here just go to my website marinafranklin.com and with friends like us you can have new guests on the show to inspire you to have them back (laughs) because you will become friends like us check Check us us out. out check us out 